How do you avoid being in a cult? How do you avoid twisting Christianity the way we have seen so many denominations twist Christianity? How do you avoid the poor, terrible fates of so many churches? Most Wednesdays, I go through modern systematics. We are reading and evaluating Paul Tillich's systematic theology, so-called. Yeah, that big fat trash book. We're asking the question, how did the churches get this bad? How did we end up here? And one answer to that is that Paul Tillich was taught in seminaries. His systematic theology is a big fat guide on how to take Christians going into seminary and make them into non-Christians, who will then go to Christian churches as pastors, lie to their congregation about their orthodoxy, and slowly but surely peel the churches away from the faith. This is all well and good, but at some point we have to ask the question, how do I avoid being like that? How do I avoid being a cultist? How do I avoid ending up with the same hyper-heterodox doctrines that we see out there, like dispensationalism or hyper-Pentecostalism? And how do I avoid ending up in direct, no bones about it, ugly, damnable cults? like Mormonism, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, or any other number of evil sects out there. Well, here is a great way to help prevent yourself from becoming a cultist, or becoming a hyper-heterodox, basically not Christian anymore kind of Christian. A. Let the Bible teach you how to read the Bible. And B make the priorities that the Bible gives you into your priorities. In other words, avoid the stupid corner. Oh, we'll get into the stupid corner and what I mean by that. But first, let's open up our Bibles to an example here. Let's turn to Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10, if you go to the book of Matthew, it's two books back. Hear the word of our Lord from Zechariah chapter 10, starting in the sixth verse. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon, till there is no room for them. 
He shall pass through the sea of troubles, and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. When we read that passage, we have questions, don't we? The prophet Zechariah speaks of Assyria, but he wrote during a time in which Assyria was not a country nor an empire anymore. But he's speaking about Assyria in the context of Ephraim being restored. Who was Ephraim? Ephraim was the predominant northern tribe of Israel. So predominant that the word Ephraim was oftentimes in the Old Testament used as a catch-all term for the northern kingdom itself. There was a brief united kingdom of Israel under kings Saul, David, Solomon, and briefly Rehoboam, but then it split into the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. Ten tribes departed from or split off from Judah to make their own country. That's Ephraim, or Samaria, or northern Israel, or just Israel, according to the different ways the Old Testament puts it. They got scattered. The Assyrians came in as a judgment from God. The ten tribes were taken out, and the Assyrians left some of them, and then shoved in a whole bunch of foreign peoples to intermix with them. The northern ten tribes were more or less bred out of existence, such that when you get to the Gospel of Luke, there is one, exactly one, mention of the tribe of Asher. There is Anna the prophetess. So how do we understand this? God is promising to restore a set of tribes, using Ephraim as kind of the catch-all tribe for the northern kingdom, saying, I'm going to bring you back home. I'm going to increase your numbers. I am going to make it as though I never rejected you. I'm going to bring you back. This is a lovely promise for a people who had been formerly rejected. But we get more questions. How did this happen? Has this happened? Did God already do that? Is it fulfilled? Is it not fulfilled? Will it be fulfilled? Did God go back on this word of promise? We have to ask these questions if we are going to be Bible-believing Christians who study the word. So I can proffer to you a few potential understandings of this passage. One would be the Maccabean Revolt. This is when that happened. The Maccabees kick out the Greeks, and there's about a hundred years of independence where Hebrews are ruling in their own homeland. Naturally, people from the northern tribes who had come back to the land from areas formerly known as Assyria or Egypt, they're coming back, and they're coming back home. And their numbers would swell and increase, though later on through wars and revolts, they would go back down to the point where they are hardly even mentioned in the New Testament. That's one potential way of looking at it. Another one is to say, hey, wait a second, what about Pentecost? God did bring Hebrews from 
everywhere in the known world to Jerusalem at Pentecost where they received salvation. They were baptized into Christ upon hearing St. Peter preaching the gospel. And of course, with the church being Israel after the atonement and the resurrection, it makes sense to say, okay, so now the church, properly speaking, is Ephraim. It's also Judah. We are all baptized into Christ who was born according to the flesh in the line of Judah. So Israel is pretty darn big. God has fulfilled his promise that way as well. Another way of looking at it is going to the stupid corner. Oh yes, we can start looking into silly little myths like Anglo-Israelism. We can go and talk about CI. We can start saying, oh my gosh, I know, Ephraim, it was promised that he'd become many nations. And that means countries, I think. And now we're going to start getting into all sorts of autistic detail about our heritage. Let's start showing how the northern ten tribes of Israel secretly became the Scythians, who never mentioned being part of Israel ever. But it's a big secret, and it's a well-kept secret. It's also how we get the Goths. It's also how we get England. It's also how we get, well, all the Germanic tribes. Too. It's all northern Israel. That's what they are. And look at how many of them there are. So clearly there must be a new Gilead and a new Lebanon. Or when white people came over to Judea and they occupied these lands, that was their return. So like the Romans coming in, that was like them coming back into Lebanon and Gilead and stuff. That's being in the stupid corner. Who else is in the stupid corner? People who would say, well, like, so yeah, they were bred out and there isn't a unique entity of a ten lost tribes anymore. You can't find somebody who says they're an Ephraimite. But um, some people have DNA from Ephraim and Asher and Manasseh and all these other tribes and stuff. That one day, that DNA is going to awaken when God brings everybody back to Israel, okay? So, um... That's going to be part of the new dispensation that happens when the law of Moses comes back for a thousand years and Jesus administrates it. That's also in the stupid corner, from a dispensationalist point of view. So what is the stupid corner? The stupid corner is where Christians go when they don't want to read the Bible the way the Bible tells us to read the Bible. And they also go there when they refuse to put priorities on what God says is a priority to them. If I sound like I'm being harsh, don't blame me. Blame St. Paul, who was harsh far before I was. Here he is writing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in the third verse. Hear the word of our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Note here in verse 4, St. Paul mentions myths and endless genealogies. He's not a fan of our silly little charts. He's not a fan of our genetic testing and saying, oh, who do you descend from? What's your heritage? Where did these people go? He doesn't like myths. You know what a myth is? A myth, from the Greek word mutois, is a fable, a fabrication, something that attempts to have explanatory power over our world. St. Paul is not a fan of it. When you hear people saying, uh, so like, Ephraim became a bunch of Scythians and also Parthians, they're telling a just-so story. When they get into their hyper-detailed linguistic explanations of, um, some syllables from the Scythians sound similar to some syllables from Hebrew, and, um, like... They had symbols that kind of look like ancient Israelite symbols. What they're doing is they are saying, I have a myth. I have a fable I'm telling. And I am going to look for details to prove it. Whenever somebody tells you a just-so story that sounds sensible, and they get into all these things to make you believe what they want, St. Paul condemns them. They are going to the stupid corner because they have swerved away from what St. Paul says is our aim. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What are your priorities, O Christian? Love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Faith in what? Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you swerve from that, you wander away into vain discussion. Oh, these people want to be teachers. Oh, yes, and they love being referred to as a teacher. They love the adulation they get from that. The worldwide church of God, with its frank Anglo-Israelism, gets into this. Why? Because Herbert W. Armstrong desired to be a teacher of the law, a teacher of God's word, without having sincere faith, without having a good conscience, without having a pure heart, and certainly not love. Armstrong did not want to focus on Christ. He didn't even believe Jesus Christ is God. Why is Mormonism teaching about the ten tribes being out in the United States? Why do we have Nephi or whatever? Because Joseph Smith wanted to be a teacher, he didn't understand what he was saying, he just wanted to make confident assertions. He made up myths and genealogies to sucker people into wandering away from the real priorities of the Christian faith. Why did Schofield create dispensationalism? I mean, aside from the Oxford publishers wanting to get certain political things done, he wanted to be a teacher. He taught all these wonderful charts and all these just-so stories so he could create dispensationalism. 
He went into the stupid corner and brought a whole lot of wayward believers with him so that they could see the bulk of Christianity being about the eschaton rather than love coming from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Hell is full of people who wandered into the stupid corner and thought themselves very, very, very smart. They thought they were Christians, but they did not trust in Christ. They trusted in their myths and endless genealogies. If you have a question about something in the Old Testament, and your explanation for it is to glom onto some just-so story, and then that's all you talk about, that's all you think about, you don't shut up about it, and you forget the gospel, let alone putting your trust in Christ for salvation, you cannot call yourself a Christian, especially when the Bible tells you how to read it. We read from Revelation 19, verse 10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Who wrote the Old Testament? Prophets. What were they doing? Prophecy, because prophecy is speaking on behalf of God. So what is the Old Testament about? Jesus. If you come up to a passage where you hear things that sound like, oh my goodness, what happened to Ephraim? Or, oh my goodness, Joel's prophecy of restoration sounds like it's something that should happen in the future, and you don't understand it. While you're studying it, bear in mind that the substance of your faith, the focus of our faith, the priority of it, and what the prophets point to is our Lord Jesus Christ and salvation in him. Huddling up in the stupid corner is how you forget that and you start to ignore Jesus for the rest of your life. And I know somebody is going to object, but, 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 but these charts, but this evidence, but shut up, get out of the stupid corner. Get out of the stupid corner, please. You are doing so much damage to yourself and you don't even know it. If it takes wandering away from love, from a pure conscience, from faith in Christ, to get into these endless myths and genealogies, what kind of effect is that going to have on you? I'll tell you what effect it's going to have on you. It is going to make you more of a citizen of the world than a citizen of heaven. We are in the world, not of it, if we are Christians, right? Well, if you decide to swerve into this stuff and get into your little just-so stories and charts, this is going to keep you in an earthly rat race, chasing genealogical ghosts as you are enslaved to the spirits of the earth. The stupid corner keeps your eyes off of Christ as you submit to the urge to live a dull, routine-based life. Every single one of these cults and hyper-heterodox groups, do you know what they love to focus on? They love to focus on the law. They love so much to get into what you have to do, how you have to do it, how pure do you have to be, how, how are you pure? Are you pure? Did you get your testing done? Oh my goodness, do you even know your history, dude? And so they end up with this same soulless life of so many people out there in the rat race based on the law. There is no new life in the stupid corner. 
you become the ant people that Dave Matthews complains about. Those with their souls castrated and their minds wasted. Imagine, you get to the pearly gates. It's judgment day. Christ himself looks at you and says, why should you be in heaven? And you answer him with, well, like, I translated the book of Enoch and I talked about how this affects the movement of nations in prophecy. How is he going to respond? You wasted your whole life, your earthly life that should have been about Jesus Christ, our Savior, following in his ways, rejoicing that he has bled for our sins and risen again for our justification. He who says, if you believe and are baptized, you are saved. Come and follow me. Do you think that if you lived a life that was totally distracted from that, that when you come to Jesus at the judgment, he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Give me a break. Uh, Jesus, I, I helped start wars because uh, wars are in prophecy and I figured if the whole Middle East was just turned into violence that that would be something that pleased you so that you would come back. I, I wanted to force you to come back, Jesus. Thanks. I, I voted for war. Yeah, congratulations. You voted to destroy lives because that was the Christian thing to do right? Get out of the stupid corner. For your own sake, for the sake of your soul, get out of the stupid corner. Now somebody is going to say, well, we're still supposed to be students of the word. What do we do with passages like Zechariah 10? Well, absolutely, there is nothing wrong with trying to figure things out. It is okay to read the word, rejoice in God's promises, and look for answers if we must, if we just gotta know. There are mysteries in scripture and it's good to try to dig it up and figure out what happened. Fine. But we must return to Christ, stick with Christ, abide in Christ, and permit the renewal and refreshing that Christ offers us through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, God himself with you from the moment of your baptism on says, let's make you into a better Christian. Yes, you can find things out. It's good to be a student of the word. Absolutely. It can strengthen our faith. It can make us better. Studying the word makes us better Christians, provided we don't take the Bible and go off into the stupid corner, rejecting the faithful Christian life for the sake of charts and genealogies and archaeology and all that other stuff. And if somebody is listening to this, getting mad at me, if you're getting upset with me because of how I am characterizing what might be your belief system, you gotta ask yourself, just for a moment, do a little bit of self-reflection. I know, it's hard. Is this really revealing your true God? Are your charts your God? Is your study your God? Because if you were a Christian, somebody faithfully walking with Christ, trusting in him for your salvation, whether or not you disagree with me when it comes to what happened to the ten lost tribes or what happens with the dispensations or whatever, 
if you were a Christian, you'd go, yeah, okay, well, I still believe this stuff, but yeah, I want Jesus to be my main focus in life. Somebody that faithfully trusts in Jesus isn't going to get all ticked off at what I'm saying. Think about that for a bit. It just might save your soul. Amen and amen.